everyone. Welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subasati. And I want to put my mouth all over you. Aww. And all over our listeners mm-hmm. and all over our Patreons mm-hmm. who voted for us to do this very special episode. That's right. This was your choice. And once again, a surprising choice, just like this time last year. We threw a couple of ideas out there. There were some that I was kind of hoping for, which have made it onto our slate for next year. So never fear about that. But uh, this one was a surprise to me. 1989's Society. Yeah, it's a cool thing that we kind of put it up to our patrons and they can go and vote on it. And we kind of threw it in as a dark horse. And what a dark horse of a film. Brian Usna has vision issues issues yep some vision <laughs> issues uh, but no it's a really singular film it's a very iconic film it's a very cult film yes it is a fan favorite for sure do you remember the first time you saw it pretty recently like within the last 10 years and i remember like i kind of knew there was a big grotesque orgy at the end yes and i was like Oh, oh, okay. This doesn't disappoint. Um, but I do remember the last time I saw a little bit of this movie uh-huh. and I went over to uh, my friend Adam and Joanne's. It was Halloween 2020. Uh-huh. And it was, you know, again, we were COVID and restrictions and all of these things. And uh, it was before vaccines and it was on Halloween night and neither of us had seen anyone like inside indoors in two weeks. So we were like, let's do it. Let's take the risk uh-huh. and do it. So we did it, and I brought over some movies for us to watch if we wanted to. But, you know, because we hadn't seen each other in so long, we wound up, like, talking and right. hanging out. It was so nice. And then towards the end of the night, like, a few balls of one later, I was like, oh, should go, but we, it's Halloween. We haven't watched anything. And they're like, oh, is there something, like, quick? So I was like, let's watch Society. And so I put on the first five minutes, and I was like, well, no, Society is really about the last 15 minutes. So I just forwarded it to the end of the film. <laughs> we watched the whole like orgy shunting scene. And then I was like, okay, bye. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Like one good thing perhaps about the last couple of years is like, they've been so surreal that moments like that are going to stick out. Like you're going to remember that yeah. forever. Yeah. I just remember the look on Adam's face of just <laughs> one of my few straight white dude friends who was just like, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I saw it when it came out when it was reissued by Arrow, which Mm -hmm. I want to say like 2014. That's probably what kind of prompted me to see it as well. Yeah. So I was was peripherally involved with Rumorg, but we were doing Cinema Cobb screenings regularly at a local rep cinema and it came out. So we decided to do a screening of it and people were losing their minds. I love this movie. I'm so excited. I'm so this, I'm so that. And I was just kind of like, okay, well, I guess I'll finally see this. And you know, like Brian Usna produced many of Stuart Gordon's H.P. Lovecraft films, which I was pretty familiar with. My first ever panel that I moderated for Fan Expo was a From Beyond reunion, and I wound up doing the Reanimator reunion as well. And, you know, like those movies, I was just kind of like, they're fine. They're not my favorite. Uh, As far as 80s, schlocky, gory movies go, they're silly. They're fine. Society, I remember sitting in the cinema and everybody's waiting for the orgy scene. People who haven't seen this movie know there's a crazy orgy scene. And I feel like you're just waiting for it and waiting for it and bored and trying and waiting for it. And then it comes and you're like, that was amazing. And then the next time you watch it, you're like, where's the orgy scene? Please hurry, please. (laughs) 
it's um it's a really interesting film and it kind of like it does what it says on the tin yes oh yes um and we were joking a bit about the film earlier this week and i was kind of thinking like is this even like a metaphorical film because they like outright say the like thing that they're doing with the film at the very end. Yeah. You know, so like how much of a metaphor could it be? But then again, I also thought about the character Tracy Jordan from 30 Rock saying, That's a metaphor. Oh yeah. All the subtlety of a sledgehammer. And I also felt like this was the kind of film that I was like, you made friends with an FX guy, didn't you? <laughs> this could have been a really fun, crazy, creative, collaborative short that you puffed out into a feature. And according to my research, that was largely the case. Yuzna held the rights to a reanimator sequel and he leveraged that for a two-picture deal, including the reanimator sequel, Bride of Reanimator and Society. So this was just to kind of get his feet wet, just to get in there, make a funny, silly movie and a funny, silly concept. And I don't know about you, but when the metaphor is that heavy handed, it's just kind of like, okay, we'll talk about it. But I tried to really parse out that which is most interesting about this film, most unique about this film. And, you know, that sledgehammer hits, but I'm not sure where it hits. Yeah. And I think there are so many little like narrative beats and intricacies that speak to a lot of the horrors that we're living through now. Um, So while, you know, this isn't my favorite film, I think it is something that should be seen. I think if you're a horror fan, you should absolutely see it. And I'm glad it exists. Mm-hmm. It definitely like put me into uh, some interesting areas of research and it brought me to some interesting theories that I'm really excited to share today. Well, let's share them. 1989's Society. Beverly Hills is known as a society of wealth and privilege, but Billy Whitney doesn't seem to be getting his share. He thinks everyone is out to get him, even his friends. You never were one of us. He thinks that he doesn't belong. And they don't even look like me. Why, why are you guys doing this to me, huh? He believes he's seeing things. Bad things beyond reality. Is it just his imagination? I'm not paranoid. All my fears are real. Or has Billy uncovered something terrible? Something unspeakable. Don't go home, Billy. What, you've been living with these people all your life and you didn't know anything about this? If you don't follow the rules, Billy, bad things happen. You know you'll make such a great contribution to society. Who are you? And now, Billy. It's showtime, Billy! Is fighting for more than just his sanity. He's fighting for his life. The time is coming for Billy to take his place. In society, it's all about fitting in. Teenager Bill lives a privileged life in the exclusive zip code of Beverly Hills. However, he is experiencing increasing paranoia around his seemingly perfect family that he reveals to his therapist. After catching his sister Jenny's ex-boyfriend spying on her before her coming out party, things go from bad to worse as the ex, Blanchard, reveals that he was bugging Jenny to record her conversations. 
When Blanchard plays the audio for Bill, it sounds like Jenny and their parents are involved in some very peculiar sex stuff. Bill gives the tape to his therapist who plays it back for him and the audio has been changed to a more banal conversation. When Blanchard has seemingly disappeared, Bill falls down a rabbit hole of increasingly odd interactions with his family and the popular kids at school, including his crush Clarissa, whose body seems to change directions at will. Growing increasingly unhinged, Bill confronts his family once more, but they and his therapist drug him. Bill escapes and makes it back to his house where a formal party is underway. He is captured and Blanchard is brought out. The party, which includes Bill's family, his therapist, the judge, and other elite members of the community, reveal that they are in fact another species and begin the shunting process on Blanchard, which blends an orgy with consuming the unwilling Blanchard. Bill is next, but makes an escape with the help of his friend Milo and Clarissa, who has refused to participate in the shunting. Strange as it may seem, that is exactly what happens. And I found when I was watching this film, like when it starts, it drops you right into Bill pretty much in therapy. Yeah. And it's just kind of like, what is going on here? Because in many ways, like this has all of the markers in the first two acts of like a raunchy 80s teen sex comedy horror movie type thing. It's bright. It's colorful. It's got so many tenets of that 80s era of Mm. privilege and exclusivity. And it's also got that super horny 80s teen guy perspective where he's just like ogling chicks and yeah, he's got a girlfriend, but she won't fuck him at a moment's notice. And so he's got a bit of a wandering eye and like stuff like that where you're just kind of like, who is this kid and why should I... I sympathize with a paranoid rich brat who is, you know, incumbent president of student council, a basketball star. You feel like he's the stand-in for Michael J. Fox, but at the same time, his character is nothing like what these kids are usually like in these movies. Well, exactly. I think the fact that this film is kind of coded as a teen film with, again, as I mentioned, the bright colors, the trendy styles, the archetypal characters, it's all for a purpose because I don't know if this is a teen movie. Again, this came out, um, well, it was initially released, especially in Europe in 1989, but it took a few years for it to get back over to America after some initial popularity overseas. And it definitely kind of apes on a lot of trends and a lot of ideas that were happening in youth culture and youth films at that time. Um, And I think society film touches on many aspects of teen life, including family, school, leisure, uh, medical issues, you know, therapy, things like that. A lot of the anxieties about being a teenager are in this film, but I, I would not consider this a teen film, would you? Well, you know, so much time is spent on the parties and the tribulations of the paranoia and the cliques and the characters. Like, who else is this for if not teens? I mean, my idea of this film is that it's coded as a teen film that allows adults to kind of look back at that era and see the fallacy inherent within it. Okay. The fact that it is so fake, it is so manicured and odd, but there is this like ooey gooey creepy underneath mm-hmm. to it that feels unsettling as it should. Um, in some ways, it actually reminds me a lot of some of John Waters films mm-hmm. where they kind of look back at, you know, a particular era or a particular um, time of life in order to comment on it for an adult audience. Okay. Yeah, I can get behind that. 
And in thinking of what you were just saying about Bill, the kind of like odd space that he occupies in this film, like he's part of the cool crowd, but he's not part of this exclusive club, I thought was really interesting. And I I went back to a book I, I mentioned before on this show uh, that's called Generation Multiplex, and it's by Timothy Sherry. And it's all about the rise of multiplexes in the 80s and 90s and how it influenced teen and youth culture. A truly fantastic book. And I pulled this from uh, his section called the labor of being popular. And he writes, popular students find their acceptability bestowed upon them from an early age. They are the most pretty and handsome, the most coordinated, the most endowed, and thus high school becomes an opportunity to demonstrate their privilege. And that led me to think about another article that our friend, I think I can say friend of the show because I feel like I've mentioned her so much recently. Uh, our friend Joanne recently shared this interview with me, which is from Vanity Fair. Again, linked in the show notes. It's an interview with the uh, writer and cultural critic Fran Lebowitz, and it's Fran Lebowitz on race and racism. And in this interview, Lebowitz says, children of movie stars like white people have at their fingertips an advantage that is genetic because they are literally the progeny of movie stars. They look specifically like the movie stars that have preceded them, their parents. And they don't have to convince us that they can be movie stars. It it just led me down that path of like, yeah, it is this inherited thing. And then this little notion, I'll talk about it later on in the episode, that Bill is not part of it and that he's, you know, wondering if he's adopted and he kind of feels outside of it. And clearly the family is like going off and doing things. Like there's a very pretty heavy handed insinuation that this basketball game that he had to go to because he couldn't attend his sister's coming out party Mm -hmm. was set up for that very reason Mm -hmm. so that he wouldn't be exposed to what they are getting up to just yet. Yes, this film is very heavy handed in you've got to be born in it. You've got to be born into it and born into it. And so when we're watching this movie, we're like, isn't he born into it? And if he's not, has he not achieved it through his own merit? And, you know, I think that's the main thrust of the film. But I was also thinking while you were talking about um, now we're seeing a lot of the next generation of the 80s celebrities, 80s and 90s celebrities. Those kids are growing up and they're getting into film. I'm thinking of What's Your Face in Stranger Things, who is luckily a dead ringer for her mom. Oh, Maya Hawk. Mm-hmm. And like she's good, but yeah, I feel great, like yeah. she's... Same with Dakota Johnson. Yep. Uh, yep. And I love uh, that actor who is Goldie Hawn's oh, son with Wyatt Kurt Russell. Russell. Yeah. yeah. I look at them more closely because it's obviously they've had every advantage to getting a leg up and showbiz. They've gotten these huge roles in these huge movies and whether or not they can perform, they don't escape that scrutiny. Uh, But at the same time, I struggle for the poor little rich kid. You know what I mean? Yeah. And Uh, even if they're not like a good enough actor to kind of make it in that realm. They tend to just become influencers. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at you, Haley Bieber. And so here we've got Billy, and I was like, okay, I can understand and respect that maybe you're in a difficult position, but do I like you? Yeah, that's a really good question. Because I didn't like him. I didn't like the way he treated his girlfriend. I didn't like the way he treated his friends. I didn't like the way he acted like a bully when he's four foot nothing. Like, And you say that as quite a small person. That's right. You have to throw your weight around a certain kind of way. And I didn't like the way he did it. Every time you tried to bully me, I just kind of pat you on the head. Mm -hmm. No, and I think that's kind of a really interesting tension in the film. And it led me to think a lot about 
the notion of the upper class and high society. And I mean, again, I'm, I, you know, I'm from and in Canada, so I'm really going from a North American experience, but there seems to be a real kind of fear around nouveau riche mm-hmm. versus old money. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was looking into, you know, what is the upper class and what is high society? And generally, uh, to make up those two communities, they are the wealthiest members of any given community. Their wealth allows them to influence a lot of things, mainly politics. And traditionally, their wealth is passed on generationally. The difference between nouveau riche and old money is that old money is seen as higher standing. There's a sense that it is God-given or divine, mm-hmm. that there is this inherentness of them having that privilege and that status. Yeah. And then generally from old money, it's like, you don't have to work. Mm-hmm. You just hang out all the time. And then the nouveau riche generally comes from business and yeah. making those big moves, making those money moves, and then getting into that really rarefied stratosphere. And then that tension between people who have never had to work and just had access and privilege and all of these things. And then people of like the few, the very few who have like busted their ass through sometimes legal, sometimes illegal means and gotten into that space. And then they're like, oh, well, this is weird to us. And and they tend to butt heads a lot. Yeah, that came up in my research, too. I found um, a really interesting article from Psychology Today by Dr. Laraz Margot. And it's about the changing nature of capital and cultural capital and the emergence of a new elite. And the author is arguing that Mercedes, Rolex, that's passe. The new elite boast things like organic vegetables, Pilates, the New York Times, political correctness. There is a new and ever-changing way to display aristocracy. It's such an Mm. ancient word, but you know what I mean. Uh, They don't consume wealth like the old elite. The new elite consumption patterns are based on values and ideology rather than material goods. And she mentions the emergence of uh, hustle culture. And I have a quote here. 50 years ago, people were considered successful if they had free time. Well, today, people are perceived as successful if they do not have time. And I think that even when it comes to, you know, um, the celebs online, like complaining about being too busy, like I have to attend this red carpet, I have to do this photo shoot. It's about trying to make us feel sorry for them for all the labor that goes into being the elite because Mm -hmm. the new elite involves showcasing that labor. Whereas the old elite, and there's sociology about this, about why suntans were such a status symbol in the 1980s. It meant you went on vacation. It meant you sat outside. Whereas in earlier generations, you were more elite if you were pale because that meant you weren't outside working in the fields. So like all of these markers reflect the ideology of the times and what it means to be elite and how you spend your time. And I think in this way, like in the film society, we just kind of see like Bill and Jenny's parents hanging out. Hanging out. They're like being weirdos. By the garden. They're like alone in their bedroom with their daughter Jenny. That scene is so fucking uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even Jenny, she's like just getting ready for parties, you know, and obviously the film is so situated in Bill's POV. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's like kind of this huge mess. Like he's got that tension with his girlfriend and he likes Clarissa and then he's going to parties and it's never quite adding up for him. It's like he's never having a good night. No. No, he's always kind of fucking up. So I think, you know, we have this understanding of what we would now consider like a nouveau reason someone who's like active in the hustle culture is like getting out there is doing all those things but we don't have access to 
really too much of what the privileged high society are doing. Right. It still feels like they feel very unknowable, mm-hmm. even though you see like them fucking turn into each other. Yeah. And I almost wonder, I mean, I didn't want to go too far into this, but it's just like when you have so much time on your hands, when, you know, you've eaten all the bonbons, you've tasted all the caviar, you've fucked all the fucking, what comes next? Kinkier fucking? Like, I, I don't know. I think we <laughs> talked about this a little bit in Hellraiser. It's just like the furthest reaches of pleasure. Right. Like, insofar as these people aren't human, I, I, I get that, but it's just like the shunting is, there is an ecstasy involved in it. And I do feel like it's, you know, part of it is achieving pleasure that the earthly realm can't provide to any of the elite. No, absolutely. And that's like, they have to go through all these things. And like, there is, you know, Jenny's coming out party, which is clearly an orgy, Mm -hmm. but then there's also shunting. So it's like, how many of these parties are they having? What is like the actual kind of internal, you know, social calendar they're here. Actually, now that I think about it, the planning of all these orgies and all the planning and effort that goes into gaslighting Bill is like probably a a full-time job. job. (laughs) Hustle culture, it's real. So getting back to the idea that you've got to be born into it, the idea that there is this imaginary list of the elite, and if you were on that list, you're in, and if you're not, you're out. That's not a super far-fetched notion. So you know that the social register is a thing. Yes. There was once an actual list of names for the American elite, and it used to be published in the newspaper. It was first published in the 1880s, and the list was later acquired by Malcolm Forbes of Forbes magazine, and now it has been owned by Washington attorney Christopher Wolfe since 2014. He owns this list. It is his, and it belongs to him. And I looked him up because, of course, I'm, I'm imagining him as this, like, shunty monster. But uh, he's 68 years old, and he actually doesn't seem like a super terrible man. He's co-authored a book about containing the spread of viral hate online, and he chairs the Anti-Defamation League's National Committee on the Internet. Like, he's one of those lawyer philanthropists. That's how they get you. That is how they get you, totally. Anyway, the list still exists. It is still printed, and it is distributed among its members and it contains all their contact information as well as like updates on these people who married, who died, who had kids, what their names are, what school they're going to. It's a networking tool. It's a phone book for the who's who. But of course, you know, like now there's a website and you can register to join the website for a nominal fee of what? Like 200 bucks. Oh, well, 200 bucks to that's apply. Actually not, oh, okay. That's not bad. It is not bad. And I was like, it's for this the hell of it. I almost want to apply. I feel like you should apply. (laughs) And what was hilarious to me was that if you look at this website, and I'll throw it on the show notes, um, if you look to apply, there's a rate for just a year's membership, and then there's a rate for a membership plus New York residency tax something. Like, they actually bundle it in with being a New York resident and stuff for for ease of the New York Well, that's my understanding of, like, so much of, like, um, high society. It's so concentrated in the Northeast Mm -hmm. of America because that's New England. And that's, you know, where a lot of people first landed. So it has that uh, reputation. Yeah. So the social register is prior to it being a fucking website. I mean, you can't look at the directory without being a member, but like the knowledge that it exists is commonplace now and easily found. But for the longest time, it was taboo. You would say that you were in the book if you were in high society, Mm -hmm. but you wouldn't say what that book was. And yet I found an article that Wolf financed parties for social register members across the U.S. in 2018 for the first time in the register's 130 year history. And insofar 
far as membership is supposed to be top secret, Classic Chicago Magazine published all these photos full of white people that I didn't recognize. And there was a pic, it was a really funny pic of a bowl of keychains. And the keychains were all embroidered with SR as like gifts for attendees. Can you imagine walking around with that keychain? Ew. It's like all the research I do on the elite. Those is are the about people you mug. These material markers are considered gauche. Yeah. And yet the social register is just hanging on to that old thing. Have you ever been to a private club? A private club? Yeah. I mean, I guess not. I had a friend who whose parents were part of like a tennis club and we used to go and swim there, which is like, I don't know. I often wondered if that was kind of like that. You know, there's like the country clubs, which yeah. you know, are still, um, I don't know if they're still as prevalent as they once were. Uh, they certainly did have their heyday. I know for people of like our generation in their, you know, 30s or early 40s, that there was this big movement, um, I want to say like almost 10 years ago. And it's still around, but I don't know if you've ever heard of this place, Soho House. Uh, no. So it's um, an international chain of private clubs. And if you, you have to apply for membership and it's like several thousand dollars, uh, I think it's if you're accepted or to apply. Anyway, okay. it was all like, ugh, no. And you have to be like, I work with this organization. And if you're like cool enough mm-hmm. and if you look like good enough, they'll accept you. Right. So if you get accepted in the Toronto Soho House, um, then you can access any international Soho House location okay. all over the world. Uh-huh. And I remember hearing that a friend of mine was a member and I was like, oh, and I kind of looked it up and I saw like, you know, this is when I was making absolutely no money and like the entry fee and the idea is like you kind of get in there and you mingle with all the quote-unquote right people. Mm-hmm. And but, our life gets better. Poof. Exactly. Uh, but then at the same time, they can invite guests. And so oh. this friend of mine very kindly invited me for dinner and then they have all these private screenings of like new movies before they're released. And she was like, oh, there's uh, this new movie called A Bigger Slash. With, it's directed by this guy, Luca Guadagnino. It stars Dakota Johnson. And this is uh, the film they made together before Suspiria. She was like, do you want to have dinner at Soho House? And and then we can go see the movie in this private screening room. And I was like, fuck yeah. Yeah. So I went and like uh, immediately you're greeted by people at the front desk. And it's like, hi, member? And I'd be like, no, I'm meeting my friend, blah, blah. <laughs> I think my friend was like, I mean, later she was already inside or something. And so I had to show them the text from my friend saying, yeah, yeah, meet me here at this time. So has this location, da, da, da. And they were like, okay. And then like they let me in. Like I was going into this rarefied space. And I went in and it was like a really nice gastro pub mm-hmm. and the food was fine. Was it free? Was no. everything on the house? No, no, you paid for all that shit. Uh, well, in that case, my friend paid for all that shit. Nice. Um, but it's like not, it's like nice, but it's like a nice gastro pub. And I've been there a few other times for like fancy after parties and like the occasional press events, mm-hmm. but it's all very like, it's not that nice once you get inside. It's not worth like a $3,000 application fee and for some unknown jury of people to judge if you're cool enough or important enough to be let into this club. Right. Yeah. It sounds like just kind of a throwback to if you need that to make you feel important, if you actually care so much about mixing with people of a certain echelon. Yeah. So in that kind of notion of being able to mix with people of a certain echelon, I wound up in your territory, Andrea. I wound up in what I understand to be a sociology concept. So oh, I thought you meant the 
vastly superior elite. That too. That's my other territory. The tiny ones. The tiny ones I can put in my pocket. Queen of the Oompa Loompas. Or just put on my back and carry around like I'm Luke Skywalker near Yoda. Never happened. You say that now. I won't stand for it. When we are retired together. Oh, okay. Yeah, then. Like, what happened to baby Jane? <laughs> just going to carry around my ashes. <laughs> oh, they'd be so tiny. Mm-hmm. But it's a theory of social reproduction. And this theory explores how social systems are reproduced through a set of pre-existing conditions. Uh, my understanding is that this was initially proposed by Marx in Das Kapital. And then it was elaborated on by a French theorist by the name of Pierre Bourdieu. Bourdieu. There you go. Bourdieu. See, you know it knew it. Yeah? Do you have anything you want to say about it? I do. I do, because the sociology of the elite is an interesting thing. The sociology is interested in the elite in kind of waves. You know what I mean? It's kind of faddish, and it's experiencing a revival now because the growing social inequality is just off the charts. Like, I didn't jot down all the stats of the 1%. I don't need to. We all know this shit. But um, in classic sociology, the elite were defined by Weber as those in possession of power and resources. And then Marx kind of distilled that further to say those who occupy a dominant position and work in many ways to keep it so. You know, Marx was kind of prickly. He was just kind of like, you know, it's very intentional. It excludes these people. It hoards everything in their cheeks, whereas Weber was, they have stuff and others don't have stuff. And so the study of elites, elite status can be earned with ingenuity or talent, but the trick is in the ability to convert those skills into capital. And capital usually means currency, uh, but it's not limited to monetary fortune. So the study of elites is also a study of what resources our culture considers to be valuable and why. And in a capitalistic society, sure, money is king, but other things can be mobilized into money. So it's not the be all end all. Distribution of resources and the value exchange of these resources enter into the story. And that's why empirical data of the modern elite is hard to come by. Who has the power? Who has people's ears? Did you watch that show, The Ozark? I am uh, about halfway through season two. Right. So they are wealthy as fuck. But the capital and the power that they wield is way bigger than their bank account. It's way bigger than the cars they drive, the clubs they frequent. And I think that show is really interesting to peek behind the curtain as to, you know, what different forms of capital can look like. Mm. And so, yeah, Pierre Bourdieu, uh, he published Distinction in 1979. It was first published in English in 1984. And he provides a broad theory of the inequality that factors into issues of taste. And he argues that it's cultural capital, not economic or political, that determined what is in good taste. And then this distinction in taste is presented as natural, that this is just high class, like this is great and this is crap, and that's obvious. And there aren't hardcore criteria to explain or to educate. You either know it or you don't. And again, that goes back to, uh, to the idea of the elite being innate. And I think that's why, like, in kind of, if I can think about it in filmic terms, that's why there's all this anxiety about, like, who wins best picture at the Oscars. Yes. Because that is the best, quote-unquote, to a certain group of people who have that access, who have that privilege. And in the last few years, the Academy is you know, undertaken, you know, really clearing out a lot of the older Academy members and bringing in a lot of newer, younger, more diverse people into the Academy. Mm -hmm. Because they're the tastemakers. And the idea of a tastemaker 
Oscar is a thing, and it's significant when you consider how influential an Academy Award can be on someone's career. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the idea of the elite wielding such capital as influence. The idea that the elite should be thought leaders, should be that which we aspire to be like mentally, ideologically, yeah. that they are pure of heart and soul. Sorry, if you can hear me making noise, I'm just... She I is find, cringing I find away. This con- I, I know it's a very real concept, but it deeply, deeply upsets me. It's a thing. And I found a great article that I really enjoyed from 2019 in The Guardian. It was called The New Elite's Phony Crusade to Save the World Without Changing Anything. And does that make you think of anything? Um, It makes me think of... I guess Prince William has this, like, fucked up phony, like, uh, environmental thing uh-huh. that's called, like, Earthshot. <laughs> Like, there's a very stupid photo of, like, Prince William putting his hands against a tree and, like, leaning against it, looking like... Cute. Uh, and it's very stupid. And that's what it makes me think of because they have all the privilege and wealth and like God's quote unquote divine right within, you know, him. And he's like, ah, oh, the environment. And like, no, I don't think anyone can really parse out what Earthshot actually does. No. It makes him feel better about being. Yeah. Most it, it's optics more than anything else. Exactly. It made me think of a certain Wonder Woman and her viral video about solidarity under COVID. Imagine all the people the most toned up viral video of all time you know i've never watched it because just the idea of it makes me feel physically it's ill your fucking skin you crawl, know right? how much i hate like singing and not a rock context like unless you're alanis morissette flinging yourself around the stage i don't know if i want to hear it mm-hmm. but like all of this like music theater style sing earnestly into the camera oh, okay i say no thank you all right all right i got you um but the article is mostly about how the new elite posit the idea of the system being against us and it's against us all and so all you have to do is hack the system all you have to do is make the system work for you yes the system's not working but instead of overthrowing it join it and here's how do it exactly the way i did and there's so much new technology emerging to make people's lives better but it's out of most people's reach and it's designed that way and i'm thinking of pharmaceuticals i'm thinking of that netflix documentary pharma bro did you watch that no i didn't oh my god this fucking piece of shit entrepreneur martin screlly not only gouges people for the life-saving medicine that he's managed to patent but he's made himself a celebrity over the assholery of it all oh yeah i know He is so filthy rich off of people dying and he's proud of it and he's managed to leverage it because he has capital that is beyond monetary. And so the article goes on to describe how activist elites like Richard Branson declare themselves the partisans of change and they start foundations to fix the problem that are actually just adding more stock to their portfolio. Not only does it increase their dominance of the world, it affords them the good PR they need to perpetuate it. It's a very capitalistic way of looking at altruism, which is the entire problem. Yeah, and it's like, like I'm sure some of you are listening and being like, why aren't you talking more about the movie Society? But we are. And I think we can't talk about the film Society without understanding 
uh, the truly scary things that this film is commenting on. And yes, we're about to jump into the shunting and orgies and all of that in a second, but um, there is some really, truly scary stuff that the rich and the elite can do. In the film, They, um, I think it's the judge who kind of mentions to that, like, Ted fuckhead, mm-hmm. like, you could have that internship in Washington. Mm-hmm. And then after uh, Billy, like, you know, pulls him inside out, um, they're like, gotta find another Washington intern. Uh, like, there's a sense, again, through social reproduction production, they're just going to reproduce themselves and it's going to elicit the same results. Yeah. You know, well, I think it's interesting to talk about this film now because elitism and social reproduction is so different now than it was back then. That's right? very true. The idea that we all know the elite exist and we all know that they're born into money, but there's a new brand of celebrity nowadays. There's the internet celebrity, there's the self-made celebrity, there's the entrepreneur, and they operate in similar ways, but they operate in different ways, but they still self-perpetuate the way the shunting does. Yes. So getting back to the film and how horny it is. Well, we obviously, we're now going to spend some time on the shunting and orgies, but Andrea, have you you ever participated in an orgy? I'll never shunt and tell. (laughs) (laughs) So I have not attended an orgy. I've not attended a shunting. Square. If anything, I would be shunted. (laughs) But orgies have been around since time immemorial. Like, as soon as... Humans were like, hey, we got these bits, and if we thrust them together consensually, it can sometimes feel pretty good. Um, That's how I imagine early humans coming to that realization. Orgy logic. Yeah, orgy logic. Um, And I found this really interesting article from The Independent, and it's called Orgies, A Brief History of Hanky Panky by John Walsh. So as I was saying, they've been around forever, and Romans participated in orgies, but with the rise of Christianity, as Christianity is wont to do, kind of put a damper on them, because they were like, no, 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 no more bacchanals, no more living large. It's time to be good and worshiping and you know you were raised in it <laughs> you're just to me i'm like oh yes i never have sex <laughs> <laughs> well no like your your parents weren't like come join the orgy andrew no, definitely not. um yeah so they were kind of in the decline as uh, christianity rose to prominence but the word orgy entered the english language in 1589 and that was because of pagans uh and if you think back to the film wicker man and all of the Let's dance around the maypole. Well, what is the maypole but a big old phallic symbol? Mm -hmm. So they were always kind of part of human society. And then after the restoration in England, and and the restoration refers to the restoration of monarchy in England uh, with the return of Charles II as king after Oliver Cromwell died, the aristocracy got back into orgies in a pretty significant way with the opening and rise of what is known as the Hellfire Club. So again, we're kind of now getting into secret societies and private homes of the elite where this is taking place. The Marquis de Sade uh, was also having them at his uh, Chateau Lacoste, and this became the inspiration for the uh, 120 Days of Sodom, which was, of course, turned into Sallow, the film by Pier Paolo Pasolini. You know, so they're happening behind closed doors for those who know, um, but they were once again on the decline in the 20th century. Though the idea was revived during the hippie free love era.
era, you know, 60s into 70s. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, when I think of orgies in popular culture, I think of the film Eyes Wide Shut. I think of a very recent episode of the series The Boys, uh, where they did Herogasm. And those are both about mysterious societies that you need to have a certain amount of access to in order to participate. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes sense. Like thinking historically, you know, sex is considered a part of nature. And so depending on where we are in history, whether nature is something that should be suppressed and regulated or something that should be embraced and indulged. And that's where we've got all this discourse of who does it, who gets to do it, who gets to talk about it. And especially if, you know, we kind of think of our generalized Western Christian society as having these taboos around sex, then it's going to happen, but it's going to happen behind closed doors. That's right. And it's invite only. Uh Uh-huh. So I also wanted to talk about why and how the free love movement came about. Okay. I really think, and I alluded to this earlier on in the episode, one of the small yet critical elements of society, the film, is that Billy is adopted and he alludes to it. He has this kind of anxiety about it in the beginning of the film and then it's confirmed by the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and given Billy's age and the film's release date, so if the film is released in 1989 and that's present day in the film, um, then I would say, if you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that Bill was born in the early 70s. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about something called the baby scoop era. Okay. From the end of World War II to about 1972, there was a pretty massive increased uptick of premarital pregnancies, which led to a much higher rate of newborn adoptions, particularly in the U.S. So adoption numbers peaked in 1970. But by 1975, they were steadily in decline. Do you have any idea of why they were in decline at that time? The emergence of birth control. Ding, ding, ding. Feminism. Bang on. Um, So the pill was approved by the FDA in 1960. In 1965, the Supreme Court of the United States, now we can say boo hiss. Yeah. Like to the current Supreme Court. But uh, they ruled in Griswold versus Connecticut that married couples could use the pill. What? But through the 1960s, there was a widespread moral panic about birth control uh, with 26 states outlawing birth control for unmarried women. And I think for anyone out there with a uterus, you know, we know that access to the pill is access to control over your reproductive rights. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's face it, not all people with penises are super stoked about wearing a condom all the time. And it's fucked up, mm-hmm. but it happens. Um, so having access to the pill allows us to have that control. Yeah. Whether they're in it or not, we at least can control what happens within our own uteruses. Yeah, that's right. And even I think like the emergence of monogamy, I think the big concern was to centralize the elite. Like if you have any doubt about paternity, like, the emergence of the bastard, basically, the idea that somebody uh, might claim inheritance to something while well, we can't prove it while your parents were married. Like this, this all kind of factors into controlling who gets what in society. Exactly. One of the most important rulings in uh, the 20th century happened in 1972. That's when birth control was legalized for all women in a ruling uh, from the Supreme Court in the case Eisenstadt versus Baird. And this was a ruling due to the logic of the ruling, which became foundational for Roe v. Wade to legalize abortion. Mm-hmm. Oh, that old thing. 
Yeah. And uh, as we hopefully all know now, uh, we are now currently at the time of recording living in an era where Roe v. Wade uh, has been overturned. And it's a really scary time. It's a really upsetting time. And we actually uh, talked a bit about this. We just did a fact flash over on our Patreon on Alex Garland's men. Mm -hmm. And we we talked quite a bit about the overturning of Roe v. Wade in that episode, uh, if you're able to hear it. Um, But uh, in that episode, we, we did talk about how while, you know, we are in Canada, we're Canadians, abortion is still legal here and in other parts of the world. But what happens in the States, it's, you know, the States are influencers. Uh, you know, they galvanize people who have that anti-abortion rhetoric uh, and it galvanizes them to push for criminalization of abortion in their own countries. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think we're seeing a lot of high alert across the world. Right. And uh, just like orgies, abortions are still going to occur behind closed doors. The elites will have access. I mean, you know, thinking about the rise of potential orgies or free love because of the birth control pill, mm-hmm. it reminded me a lot of uh, the meme that's been going around since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, like, we will adopt your baby. Yeah, yeah. And I thought it was so interesting about the orgy and shunting. It's not like they're trying trying to produce more of themselves. It seems like it's literally just to suck the essence or nutrients or whatever out of people less fortunate than them. That's right. And again, that harkens to the rhetoric of like, why would the right want all these unwanted babies? Where do they expect them to go? And, you know, there is a very concrete answer to that, which is that, you know, poor people do the labor that keep the rich rich. And it keeps them that way. And they have access to things that they're going to forever be able to do as, as so much um, rhetoric since Roe v. Wade was overturned has you know come about, which is that, you know, abortions are still going to happen. It just means that they're going to be less safe mm-hmm. for a lot of people. But, you know, the mistresses of rich and powerful people will still be able to get them. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was interesting that during the shunting party, Bill is kind of referred to as like a delicacy because he was raised within this high society home and that this was, you know, we're going to have Blanchard first, but then this is like the main thing. He's like the Kobe beef. Exactly. And it kind of got me to think a lot about the darkest theory of what's going on right now, Mm -hmm. which I've read in a few places. And, you know, it's one of those things that you read and you're like, fuck, that's heavy. And that's a lot. And I don't want that to be true. But the more I think about it, the more it's probably really fucking true. Tell me. So this kind of ongoing criminalization of so many people's ways of life, mm-hmm. whether it's, um, you know, healthcare access for trans people, uh, voting rights access, uh, abortion. And now with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, there's talk about uh, how they could use that same logic to overturn uh, access to contraception, like all kinds of crazy shit that could come about because of this overturning of Roe v. Wade. And that if they continue to outlaw things, it's, as we've said, it's not going to stop them from happening, but it does criminalize them. And it criminalizes essentially being poor. And if enough elements of our daily lives are criminalized and disenfranchised, then it's going to force people into low-paying jobs, which it already has, and or eventually, um, as enough things are outlawed and enforced, uh, it's going to force more and more people into private or for-profit prisons. And I don't know if you guys know a lot about those. Uh, They are rampant. And basically, you are in 
prison and you are forced to do labor for next to no money for major corporations. It is essentially creating a slave class. And that is the ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. And it's working. Like it's happening right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we can make a funny movie about how it's happening. Isn't this silly? But it's a dark and dirty thing. And it's it's only gotten worse since this movie is made. Exactly. And and I think what's interesting about the movie is like Bill, uh, Clarissa and Milo get away. And I think in the Arrow release, there is a comic that kind of, you know, it kind of sequelizes it a a sequel. Yeah. But it's like. The, the society are fine. They're like, we just got to find another kid for Washington. That's it. You know, it, it's not stopping them. There's nothing they can do because throughout the film, it's like the police are in on it. The ambulance, the hospital seems to be part of it. Like it's all there. It's all under the control. Mm-hmm. So all you can do is once you've seen it, once you've escaped from it, is run. Yeah. You escape from it. Hopefully, you know it's there. And uh, that's the horror is the realization of the truth of it. Even something as outlandish as this film. We can see the truth in it. And I often think about this like these days, like the way the conservative parties across the world are like trying to destroy our rights, the environment, our access to healthcare. It's terrifying. And I often just think to myself, like, if you win, what are you going to be in charge of? You're going to be in charge of a pile of shit. You're going to be in charge of nothing. But that's the thing is they don't care. Yeah. And I think that's what we have to stop, or I've tried to stop for myself, like trying to rationalize it because there is no rationalization. Mm -hmm. There is only this kind of decrepit servitude to power and money that will eventually consume them, but not before it has consumed all of us. That's right. That's right. And that's why we have to be reasonably sus of the elites who are trying to help hack the system. Do it my way. You can be an entrepreneur, even though entrepreneurial tools are only available to the elite. You know, we're small business owners. And let me tell you, our taxes are I have here a really crazy quote from Oscar Wilde that came up in that Guardian article I mentioned before. And like it's mostly about how the elite do-gooders, it's not just that it's all an act. It is, but it perpetuates the status quo when what we need to do is completely overthrow it. And the quote is, just as the worst slave owners were those who were kind to their slaves and so prevented the horror of the system being realized by those who suffered from it and understood by those who contemplated it. So, in the present state of things in England, the people who do most harm are the people who try to do most good. And it's a bleak sentiment. It's a nihilistic sentiment. But when you hear the rhetoric of you need to work the system, you need to change things from the inside, you need to wake up. And it's it's hard because I don't think there's any one good, clear answer, you know, and I I see people be like, you know, you got to get out and vote. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you you do. do. And there's enough people being like, well, they always just tell us to vote. But yeah, no, go vote. Uh, For instance, in Ontario right now, we just had um, an election for our premier and the horrible man, Doug Ford, another right wing conservative who is just fucking idiot, uh, was reelected. And when you look at the election numbers, I think it was, I'm going to get my percentages probably slightly wrong, but it was like 40% of Ontarians, Mm -hmm. and we're the largest province in Canada, voted. Mm -hmm. Out of those 40% who voted, 40% of that group voted for Doug Ford. Mm -hmm. So it's like less than half the province and then less than half of that 
voted for Doug Ford, mm-hmm. but they got out in a strong enough numbers that he is now our premier again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think voter apathy and, you know, people being disillusioned by the system, people mistrusting the system, people mistrusting an election, all of this that gave rise to the horror that was the Trump era, all of this factors into how the elite are behaving and how the system is created to perpetuate itself. And, you know, in many ways, change within the system is not possible. No, but But um, it doesn't mean you shouldn't get involved. I agree. Uh, It means we should get more involved. Yeah. I think the more involved we get, I think that's what changes it because it takes the power away from the people who have socially reproduced themselves into those systems. Mm -hmm. And the more outliers we get, the more things can shake up. I mean, like, look at Trump as an example. Look at uh, Doug Ford as an example. They were once outliers who came in and through, like, absolutely hateful, bizarre rhetoric, won votes through corrupt systems. But there are always more of us who want equity, who want access to care in all its different forms, than there are of those stupid shunting elites. They can go shunt themselves. They really can. And I have to say, I think that's really fun about the film is that, you know, there's a lot of sexuality throughout. There's all these like beautiful teenage bodies that the camera loves to linger on. And then in the shunt, we're seeing the kinds of bodies we don't normally see naked and fucking. No. And even through like the film is, yeah, like there is this kind of like nascent sexuality throughout it. But then it's also like tinged very early on with like incest. Yeah. yeah. And like all kinds of like beyond taboo subjects that I'm like, oh, oh, dear. But I think in this film, it's critiquing it and commenting on it, not in the most subtle way. I think it's it's very deliberate. It's very overt, but it's it's a critique of it. It's not, you know, it's up to your interpretation, man. It's like, no, this is like a really fucked up thing and fucked up characters are doing it. So you walk away going, I don't think that incest shunting was a good idea. No, we like sexy sex with young nubile bodies. I do like sexy sex. Not with your elderly folks, I hope. I think, I don't know if my my body's so young and sexy anymore, but... Sure it is. (laughs) Thanks, friend. (laughs) So that is our episode on society. We want to thank um, everyone for listening. We want to thank our patrons for being our patrons and for voting on this. Yes, fun Uh, choice. Yeah, I I think it's something we probably would have eventually gotten to, but it's kind of an interesting one to talk about now. And as I was watching it and researching it, I was like, oh, this is uh, prescient. It's evergreen, to be honest. Yeah. And uh, as I'm sure many of our regular listeners know, um, this is our July episode. So that means August is our month off. That's right. We take a sabbatical. I don't know about you, but I'm busy as fuck. Uh, I'm busy as fuck too, but... Uh, that's partially because we don't stop on Patreon. No, we don't. Uh, so if you're hankering for more fact, uh, please know you can find us on Patreon. All the links are below in the show notes, and uh, there's lots of content there. We will have some more content coming out in August, and we are hoping to have a little fact flash episode on Jordan Peele's new film, yes. Nope, which I'm very, very excited as soon for. as we can get out to see it. Yes. And I'm excited for our September episode, too. We often treat our September episode as... You know, we're fresh as a daisy. We're back off our break. Summertime's over and we're going back to class. And I can't think of a better film to fill that 
kind of eventual dread of having to return to responsibilities and uh, the uh, core of life and death than exploring Final Destination. I'm excited. I'm excited too. Over the course of the pandemic, we've been having these like watch parties, all these watch parties where we watch older movies uh, and just on Zoom and roast them. And we've been watching a lot of stinkers, but Final Destination, we watched it and we watched some of its sequels and they are just so pure. They are just so <laughs> fun. I think it's just such a compelling setup and it's simple and it just it, it leaves the door wide open for so many interesting permutations. We're going to talk mostly about the first one. I imagine we'll touch on the sequels a little bit, but uh, I dare say it holds up and I'm excited to revisit it with you. I'm excited to revisit it with you. Ooh. No, I mean, I, I really enjoy it. Um, I talked a bit about it in my 1990s teen horror book and there's such a weird kind of joy to revisit. So I'm excited okay, to great. get to tackle it again. So we'll see you in September. And until you get yourself into that private elite club, Ooh, office hours are shunted. Making love to you was never second best I saw the world rushing all around your face Never really knowing it was always mesh and lace I'll stop the world and melt with you You've seen the difference and it's getting better all the time there's nothing you and I won't do I'll stop the world and melt with you We should go better Dream of better lives, the kind which never hates Trapped in a state of imaginary grace I made a pilgrimage to save this human's race